I always used to give Owen Sheehan a good bit of grief for his power rankings. They aren't easy, Will. As a group, as players, we have not done one minute of video analysis of any team this year. The Club Championship Show. Subscribe to the GEA podcast feed on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. You're so unexpected. It's one of those you had to be there moment. You had to be there. It subsequently genuinely did change everything about my life. You had to be there. Yeah, latest episode of You Had to Be There. Broadcaster and journalist Lee McKenzie. Very good morning. How are you? So that you might, I might win tickets to Leopardstown, although I'm not sure if I qualify for that. <laughs> I'd say we could hook you up with some. We could, we could. Uh, Lee, before we get into your picks, and uh, remarkable picks they are, I have to say, uh, we should mention the book, Inside F1, and we spoke to you about the oh, book yeah. a, a number of weeks ago. Um, this is a, a book with a foreword by David Coulthard and chapters on your experiences of and the uh, the careers of some top Formula 1 drivers, Schumacher, Hamilton, Vettel, Verstappen, Alonso, Massa and Button. How's the how's the book process been for you? It's quite cathartic, I'd imagine. Yeah, it's it's been really interesting. Um, it's still odd when I'm trying to do my Christmas shopping and then you see a book uh, in the shop, which I suppose is, is quite exciting. But um, yeah, for me, I just... You know, I've grown up in, in sport. I love Formula One. A couple of the stories from the book are actually my picks of today. Um, so, yeah, it's it's surreal, really, but I'm pleased I did it. It was a bit of a labour of love, and then it just becomes a bit of a labour. And then when it's done and out there, you think, thank God, I do love it again. People who want to get the, the book into the stockings, I'd imagine they can get it in the, the usual places. Yeah, it's on sale um, across Ireland as well, which is which is great. So, um, no, it's been well received. I've not been sued by any of the drivers yet, so I, I'm counting that as a win. <laughs> uh, Lee, you've had the, I guess, the honour and privilege of attending a lot of different sporting events in your capacity as a, as a broadcaster and TV presenter and journalist um, across a number of different codes. So we might get into your, your picks. So this is, you had to be there. We, we, we asked guests to pick five events where there was a standout performance um, and, and so just a memorable event that, you, that you've that you attended at some point in your life. So we might go in uh, in order, I'd imagine, chronologically. Uh, and I think yeah. we're going to start in 2008 with the Brazilian Grand Prix. Maybe remind people uh, who... who Kind of have forgotten this in the annals of history. 2nd November 2008, Felipe Massa wins the race, but uh, there are other stories going on here. There were so many different subplots, um, and this is one from the book, but basically it had just been a surreal weekend. It was my first weekend ever working for BBC. Um, I'd been held at gunpoint on the way to the racetrack, uh, so it already started off as a really random thing. David Coulthard's last Grand Prix, and then we had ultimately... We might just, we might just get Lewis you back Hampton. in one second there. Your, your line is just breaking up very ever so slightly. We'll be back to you in just just a moment. Um, some crazy stories. Well, that's Lee. not a great start to your uh, I mean, like held at gunpoint. 100%. Uh-huh. This is, having read Lee's book, it's one of the stories within it, like being held at gunpoint on the way to the Brazilian Grand Prix. And this is at Interlagos uh, near Sao Paulo, and it's manic. You imagine how big Sao Paulo is, but even getting to the track and they have to have security and that sort of thing as well. So... Uh, Quite a scary start to your your journalism career, I'd imagine, um, especially when you've probably covered events like Wimbledon and rugby matches. To go then to to a Formula One race in in the middle of a fairly scary part of Brazil has to be has to be quite different. Um, so yeah, not an easy thing for for Lee to have done, but yeah, certainly that race in particular probably stands out to a lot of Formula One fans. 2008. I think we have Lee back on the line out there now. Lee, you, you, sorry, you were saying uh, a very scary thing. You were saying you were held at gunpoint. 
<laughs> yeah, I hadn't just been shot whilst I was saying these words. <laughs> um, yeah, it was uh, it was dramatic. We headed into the Grand Prix. Ultimately, it came down to Felipe Massa against Lewis Hamilton. Um, this, of course, is the race where Felipe thought he had won the Grand Prix. Well, sorry, he thought he'd won the World Championship. But the race was still going on. The Grand Prix was still going on behind him. Lewis Hamilton had to finish in fifth. Um, Timo Glock was on the wrong tyres and Lewis did it. Now, for Felipe to be a world champion in his mind, the garage was celebrating, his family were celebrating. Felipe's tears of joy suddenly became a bit of a nightmare and he was just uh, inconsolable. He realised that he hadn't achieved his dream. It was just heartbreaking for him. Lewis had achieved his. It was his first world championship. Mm. I was in the pit lane. Uh, it was pouring with rain. We were running between garages. Nobody really knew at that time what was going on, but it was just an incredible moment. That must be fairly manic in the pit lane. Like when you're covering it from that level, you're seeing the the strain on the the different teams' faces, and you're trying to decide where you want to be for the you know for the checkered flag. Not easy to cover. Not easy to cover, and there's also still cars coming down the pit lane, and people are everywhere, and it's you know it can be quite a dangerous thing. But uh, to be in amongst it in that moment, it was a moment that transcended the sport. You just knew that um, that was you know it was much bigger than somebody winning and somebody losing. Ultimately, that's what the history books will say. But to be in there in that moment was just a, a surreal experience, and and for me, the, the most emotional sporting event that I've ever been part of. Probably emotional in some ways, I guess, because of location. Um, like, you've got yeah. the Brazilian fans who have a, a skin in the race as well. Like, they, they want Massa yeah. to do it. And, and I guess when, as you say, he crosses the line as the race winner and they see how far back Hamilton was at that particular moment, I know it was close, but they must have all believed. And then it's, it goes from joy to pure devastation for the fans. Yeah, and Timo Glock, who is the guy who Lewis overtook for that position, still, I don't know why I'm laughing, he's a great friend of mine, but still gets um, like death threats and abuse every time in the lead up to the Brazilian Grand Prix. He's like, oh God, not this again, because he is part of this, like it or not, he has become part of this huge story around it. But the atmosphere at the Brazilian Grand Prix is always incredible just because of the fans. They don't really need an excuse to have a party and make noise. You add in their local driver who could win a world title and the thing was just off the charts. Where does Sao Paulo rank um, in terms of the enjoyment now uh, being held at gunpoint aside? Uh, I, I guess it's one of those that tracks that, that's, yeah, well, that's quite unfortunate, isn't it? But it must, be, it must be a lot of fun to have the Brazilian atmosphere there as well. It is. I think when you're in the racetrack, um, you love it. You know, it's a great circuit. Um, Interlagos is, you know, between lakes, so there's a great atmosphere. Everything else going around it and getting to it can be a little bit frenetic. You know, we don't travel in team kit or anything. You don't put your sticker on the window. You're in bulletproof cars. So there is an element of danger about it without a, a doubt. But when you're actually there, it is one of the greatest atmospheres that you will ever feel in Formula One. I'm loving reading some of the comments here from, from before the race. So the build-up was was juicy because everyone knew what was at stake, uh, Lee. But uh, Eddie Jordan, a uh, bit of controversy before the race. He was uh, These quotes are brilliant. He says, If Massa tries to take him out, as he did in Japan, him being Hamilton, in order to steal the title, then Lewis has to be ready for it. If he tries that on, on then Lewis has to turn his wheel into Massa to ensure he does not finish the race either. He has to take his wheel off. Like, <laughs> I mean, there is an insight into EJ. Yeah, but it builds up. And some people could. It was they were controversial comments at the time, but some people can probably see that attitude that 
you got to do anything to win Formula One. Well, you could say that in any sport, but there are also rules. I mean, if you do you want to be known for that? That's the the sort of thing. That you, what's the what's the benefit in that? I mean, that will bring us into um, later on. We'll talk about Abu Dhabi twenty twenty one. You know, Max Verstappen didn't need to finish that race to uh, be crowned world champion. But it's almost a bit of a slur. It's a bit insulting to other people's talents if you say the only way you can win a race is to deploy sort of dirty tactics. So I think EJ's a little bit off on that one. <laughs> so that's your first uh, addition to the You Had to Be There yeah. segment of the Brazilian Grand Prix and a, and a great one at that. Uh, we'll move on to 2015, Lee. So this is Wimbledon. A lot of people over here will have, uh, I guess, seen you on the Wimbledon coverage down the years on, on the television yeah. as well. Uh, this was Dustin Brown against Rafa Nadal. Uh, an upset on the 2nd of July 2015 but uh, remarkable from your point of view in terms of who you watched the match with I think Yeah I've probably seen better tennis matches um, around the world and, and certainly at Wimbledon and I've been lucky enough to you know I go on to court to interview the, the winner of each match um, and I've definitely been part of right, really big ones uh, Federer Nadal in a semi-final where everything rides on it what happens when you're doing these interviews is that you're never just concentrating on one game if Roger Federer suddenly uh, wants to get interviewed at 20 past 2 and <laughs> you're actually doing the match on centre court I still have to run off and interview Roger uh, or any player and he could see that my eye line kept like drifting off and he was like are you covering this match as well and I said well yeah I am he said do you know much about Dustin now Dustin Brown was 102 in the world he'd actually beaten Rafa the year before on grass um, but he wasn't a player that we really knew too much about um, he he was very good on, on grass as a surface um, but Roger said well I'll tell you what let, let me talk you through some of this. And I was like, are you sure? And he was like, he's in two shots time, he's going to place the ball here. And Dustin Brown's quite a trick player. He's got some, you know, he had some great sort of, you know, shots, tweeners and all that kind of thing. And Roger was right on every single one. So Dustin Brown ultimately beats Rafa Nadal. But for me, it wasn't even just the moment of the match. It was being able to sit there with Roger Federer who is talking me through how this guy plays and why Rafa isn't able to get into a rhythm. It was like the best commentary I've ever been part of. And he was so generous with his time. Because um, I think actually the thing was that that Roger was very keen to watch the match as well and probably didn't want to be interviewed by me at the time. Um, so it was just a really surreal situation, a really special moment. You've spoken uh, to us before, uh, it was around the book, I think, uh, Inside F1, and you were talking about uh, Michael Schumacher and visiting him at his... <clears throat> residents like yeah. that must be quite special to to sit down with people like Federer like Schumacher who are above their sport they're icons globally yeah I think so it doesn't happen very often I mean I interviewed these guys all the time I was lucky enough to to know Michael uh, reasonably well and go to his house on several occasions um, once took a horse over to compete at the world at the uh, reigning competition that they had there um, but to spend time with Roger for some reason. I think it's because I don't see them day in, day out. You know, I do Wimbledon. It's once a year for Formula One. You see these guys 23 times a year. So rightly or wrongly, the sparkle comes off a little bit. But um, Roger, to me, is the ultimate um, athlete. How he conducts himself on and off the court, I think, is 
what everybody should be aiming for. So to spend a bit of time with him. And he's so generous with his time, not just to me, but to everyone. You know, he goes around, shakes all the cameraman's hand and everything like that. And you know, it's really, it's he makes everyone feel very special. I think a lot of people shed a tear and Roger shed a tear himself when he yeah. made that retirement announcement. Like just one of those moments that sent chills up your spine watching himself and, and Nadal together. And they've yeah. had so many moments on the court, but clearly emotional for both of them. And to have greats alongside each other, you know, I think that's how you sort of appreciate what a great is. Sometimes they're, they stand alone and then somebody, you know, they retire and then somebody else comes along. But we've been so blessed in tennis to have so many quality players battling out against each other. And I think that's really the measure of, of you know, what a great is. A superb addition to you had to be there. So 2015, Dustin Brown beating Rafa Nadal at Wimbledon and, of course, made special by, by Roger Federer being there as well. 2018... Ireland yep. beating the All Blacks for the very first time at home. So I guess we remember for, for Jacob Stockdale's performance in particular, 29 points to 20, 17th of November 2018. It's actually hard to believe it's it's, it's four years ago at this point, uh, Lee. Yeah, it was. Um, I was presenting all the Ireland um, autumn matches as well as the Champions Cup for Channel 4. And it was... Um, our first year really doing that. You know, I'd done a lot of rugby for BBC and things, but um, to be able to go a couple of years before that, they'd um, Ireland had won in Chicago against the All Blacks, but they'd never done it at home. Um, I was with Peter Stringer and Joe Coco and Jamie Heaslip. And to be pitch side with these guys for such a huge match, regardless, for such a huge moment as it turned out to be was really special. Um, there were so many standouts you know the Irish pack were so good particularly in that first half Johnny Sexton got 11 points uh Jacob Stockdale's try was out of this world chip and chase um he, he just was you know sublime um but also the All Blacks didn't score a try it was the first time in 23 mm-hmm. tests that they weren't able to score a try that was a huge deal um to be there and be part of that was so special. I mean, it's strange, isn't it, how things have played out because you almost go, Ireland all black, so Ireland will probably do it. I mean, those words hadn't really been said before then. Um, and it's it's just been an incredible time for, for Irish rugby generally. But to be there for that first home win um, over the, the ABs was special. Yeah, I think we'll be talking about that match in Ireland for, for quite some time. And it's funny because sometimes the Aviva Stadium gets a little bit of criticism for the atmosphere being a little bit stale. Sometimes, usually it's in the the football internationals but that night I wasn't there in the Aviva but you could feel it through the TV you must have been the stadium must have been shaking yeah and it was a Saturday night a late night kickoff. I actually started the programme because I think we were up against Strictly Come Dancing <laughs> um, like either The Voice or, or X Factor or something like that and I actually started off the programme by saying sport this is the best form of reality TV you're ever going to get and that's exactly how it played out um, the atmosphere was wonderful. I always like the atmosphere at the Aviva. I don't think it matters if I'm there for, you know, a Champions Cup match or um, an Ireland international. I think it's great because you know it's going to fill out. You know it's going to sell out because you know it's it's smaller than a lot of the others. But I think it's a, it's a great you know partisan crowd, but also a welcoming crowd. I mm. think when you go there, you know, not being Irish, um, I think you never feel out of place. I think it's very welcoming. Just reading uh, one of the the reports, uh, Robert Kitson, I think it was in the in the Guardian, writing on the, on that night as well, um, saying at times it felt like one of those old school heavyweight bouts, Ali versus Foreman, the whole world watching, body shots, shuddering, and that was that was a, a point as well. It was one of those nights where the physicality was 
was oh. unbelievable. From the start, I mean, like when you even just have to watch like the first five minutes and it is nonstop. And let's not forget, like Ireland crossed the line on two other occasions, CJ Stander, Rob Carney, both those tries weren't allowed. I mean, Wayne Barnes, it was one of those ones where you're like, is Wayne Barnes the ref going to get out of here tonight alive? But um, <laughs> he did. It was absolutely fine. But, you know, Ireland were absolutely up for it. And to have two disallowed tries, imagine what, what you know, we'd have been talking about it as the greatest sporting moments if they'd had another 12, or 10 or 14 points. And it, it, Like any time you're ahead against New Zealand in a match, no matter which country you are, you're always expecting that, that rally in the second half. And that rally came from yeah. the All Blacks that night, as it inevitably would. Uh, but Ireland just managed to hold it off. The defence from Ireland's perspective was was impeccable. Yeah, you should try being Scottish. I mean, like every time that, you know, we're ahead in most sporting events until like the, you know, the last quarter or something, you're thinking there's going to be a comeback. That tends to be exactly what happens. Uh, but this night, you know, at the Aviva, you just had a feeling that Ireland could do it because they had been so impressive. Because it's the All Blacks, you never ruled them out. You never ruled them out. You're absolutely correct. But I just always sensed that the Ireland way would be able to do it on that occasion. And, and the, the Stockdale try you mentioned, 48 minutes on the clock, it is the standout yeah. moment of that match and uh, holding New Zealand to no tries, as you say, was was, was remarkable. But that, that moment, for, for someone, usually in, in a game like that, it stands out for a performance or for someone standing up and putting their hand up and saying, well, I'm going to take this game by the scruff of the neck. And at that moment, uh, as you say, it was the, the manner of the try as well, Jacob Stockdale really stood up. And everyone, absolutely, Jacob was, you know, just incredible. There were also a lot of people that did really good things, like Pietro Mani put in an incredible uh, try-saving tackle that would have, you know, could have changed the game um, had had New Zealand gone in. Um, but even right until the end, like you know, the clock had gone red. New Zealand were in like this. It was the 16th phase of play or something before. Um, I can't remember if it was Sam Whitelock or Brody Retallick or someone like just knocked it on and that was it. And then the place went absolutely wild. But, you know, every player put in an incredible performance, whether it be we talk about Stockdale because he was the one that went over for that, you know, outstanding try. But across the board, everyone was just at the, at the you know, the maximum level. Uh, so we're sticking with rugby, Lee, for your next inclusion. So it's 2021, England versus Scotland in the Six Nations. And I mean... As a Scot, you, you had to include this one. It's fair enough. Uh, so it's 6th of February well, 2021. this England's is an interesting one. one. It is, but I've been at better matches without a shadow of a doubt. Like, I kind of prefer the one in 19, where Scotland, I think, were something like 25 points down at half time. It ended up, I think, 36 all. I interviewed Gregor Townsend afterwards, who I know, and he said, God, I thought you would have left at half time. And I was like, I thought you might have gone at half time as well. But what was so special about 2021 even though it wasn't a great game, was that we were in the COVID times. So in actual fact, and there was a, an article about it afterwards, you know, Scotland had waited 38 years to beat England at Twickenham. And there were only 12 Scottish people, including myself, who weren't connected with the team who were in Twickenham at 80,000 seater stadium. So selfishly, I put this one in, um, not really because it was a classic match, Yes, we won, and it was incredible to sort of break that duck. But it, at the same time, 
for me to be there and see this when nobody else was able to, I realised what a, a privileged position that I was in because Scottish people had waited so long for this moment and they weren't allowed to be part of it for obvious reasons. Um, so that's really why I've included that one. Less Scottish people in the crowd than there were on the pitch. That's that's yeah. remarkable. And we were all working. So, you know, you, what, what was also strange was when you talk about, you know, expecting comebacks and things like that, it was a really odd match. I mean, there wasn't another point scored after 48 minutes. So you could tell it wasn't a classic. But at the same time, you know, there, there was no atmosphere. So you didn't really know where you were in the match. You know, when you build up and then half time happens, but there was no ebb and flow. There was no sort of quietening down of the English crowd because they were unhappy about um, how their team were playing. It just sort of crept up on you. I remember looking down at the clock and then saying to someone, God, like, this is over in two minutes. Scotland could actually win this <laughs> because you sometimes need the crowd to take you on that journey throughout a match. Um, and there just was none of that. And it was so eerie. You could hear the refs calls, as you know, you could hear the, you know, the line out calls, the players talking to each other. And it was just very surreal. Quite special for, for a broadcaster like yourself to get that experience. I know it was in tough circumstances given COVID and we always prefer when crowds are there. But yeah. to be in that environment where you're, you're at a Six Nations match, this isn't a behind closed doors game necessarily in terms of a friendly this is this is a game with so much on the line and you can hear all the calls. That that just adds to the experience, I'd imagine. Yeah, it does. I mean, I did one um, at uh, Llanethley's ground, a Wales-Scotland match. They decided to use that one instead and you're much closer then so you can hear absolutely everything. It was really odd, but you feel like you're just at a sort of training game uh, and then you remember that millions of people outside of this little you know world that we're in are watching this. Um, so... Yeah, it was a it was a very odd experience, but it's one that I'm um, I, I realise how privileged I was to actually be there to see Scotland getting that. Um, I was going to say incredible win. It was it was incredible that they won, but it certainly wasn't a classic rugby match. Just reading here, like it was the hundred and hundred fiftieth anniversary of the fixture as well, a famous fixture England and Scotland. Uh, it's just like history just came together for the Scots on that night and. Cameron Redpath, brilliant. Stuart Hogg, captain yeah. of the team, was brilliant. But Finn Russell as well, pulling the strings. Yeah, Finn put in some great kicks, just kept moving the ball around. I mean, in uh, true Finn Mercurial style, he did get a yellow card as well. <laughs> so he left the field for 10 minutes. But he, you know, there's a reason why he plays with that freedom and he just kicks around, you know, the ball moves it around, puts puts people in a position where they can score a try, um, like Duhan van der Marver did. Um, he actually went over thought he'd got it down, hadn't got it down, and then scored a little bit later on. Um, but it was an odd one. But, uh, Billy Vanapola got a yellow as well. So there were times where it was like 14 against 15 and, and then vice versa. But um, yeah, it was, I don't know if anyone at any point was really in command of it. Um, but Scotland sort of just hung on hung on the best, I think, ultimately. Yeah, incredible win for Scotland. 11-6 to break, as you say, that 38-year that Ducks. That's the, your fourth entry for you had to be there this week. Uh, the final one, Lee, you mentioned earlier on, but uh, all Formula 1 fans, and even people who maybe haven't followed the sport or only have since tried to survive, will remember the, the end of the 2021 season in Abu Dhabi. Uh, it was Max Verstappen against Lewis Hamilton. It was all on the line, and, I mean, it seemed like it was going, going fairly normally until, uh, until yeah. shit hit the fan. Yeah, that would be, that perfectly sums it up. I mean, it would, 
I still struggle with this. It still puzzles me. Um, it doesn't mean to say I don't think Max deserved it because he had won, you know, more races, more pole positions. Uh, if neither of those drivers had finished the race, Max would have been world champion. Um, but the manner in which it was won, the manipulation or the the way that the safety car came out, let five cars through, then stop. It, it was just a mess. None of us could believe what we were seeing. We were all standing. I just remember all of us standing there looking at each other like, what is happening? Uh, and with, you know, David Cothard, Mark Webber, these guys, and everyone was sort of shocked silence. Um, because, not because, as I say, Max had won or Lewis had lost, but it had been quite a steady race. Uh, Lewis had been in command. Uh, Nicholas Latifi had a crash. They brought out the safety car. And from then on, it was just madness ensued. Um, and yeah, it's a hard one to sort of square off. That's why for me, uh, 2008 Brazil will always be much more dramatic than 2021 uh, Abu Dhabi, because that is Brazil 2008 is the true sense of what sport is. Mm. Whereas Abu Dhabi 21 for me was just, um, it, I don't know, it was just a mess really. Left a bad taste in the mouth, I think, for, for a lot of people, no matter which side of the support you're on. Yeah. Uh, like, and there was a fall guy, as you said, in, in Timo Glock in 2008. Nicholas Latifi kind of became the fall guy in, in Abu Dhabi. Yeah. And, you know, everyone crashes. That's the thing. It's, uh, that's, it's not like, he went out there and did it deliberately. He was wanting to finish that race, finish off the season, go for a couple of drinks, have a nice time. But it ultimately didn't work out that way for him. But he's by no means responsible for um, what happened. You know, that's on the FIA. That was on Michael Massey. He, Nicholas, was only responsible for, you know, pissing off his team mm. as his car hit the wall. End of story. Um, what happened after that is out of his hands. Uh, well, listen, it's been a brilliant edition of, of You Had to Be There. You've you've been in some extraordinary positions because of your work, no doubt. So, 08 Brazilian Grand Prix, 2015, sitting beside Roger Federer, uh, as you like, for, for a Wimbledon match. Yeah. Dustin Brown beating Nadal. 2018, Ireland beating the All Blacks uh, at home. 2021, behind closed doors, of course, England against Scotland and the Six Nations. And uh, the 2021 Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Uh, like Hamilton and Verstappen are two of those chapters in the book, so people can, can get their hands, as we said, on, on Inside F1 and all the usual spots. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many other ones. I had like best mate winning the first gold cup in 2002. You don't think you're going to get to five and before you know it, you're at 10 or something. Yeah. So it's been a real pleasure to be part of. It's, it's been great. So thank you very much. And thanks for your patience as well. And the, in the dodgy, uh, the dodgy sort of connection as well. Not a problem. We got there in the end. Lee, thanks a million as always. That is Lee McKenzie. Thank you so much, guys. Merry Brilliant Christmas. Stuff. Latest episode. Merry Christmas to yourself. You had to be there in the books. Just so unexpected. It's one of those you had to be there moments. You had to be there. It subsequently genuinely did change everything about my life. You had to be there. OTB AM. With Gillette, get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.